Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. Good afternoon, everyone, or good evening, or right in between afternoon and evening. Uh, my name is Joel Megan. I'm the head of the School of Public Health here at the University of Sydney. Uh, and thank you very much for taking the time uh, out of your evening to spend with us at this Sydney Ideas event uh, on heat. Uh, and I'm glad the sun was out today a little bit because uh, over the last few days, uh, the last few weeks really, we haven't had a lot of uh, occasion to talk about heat. Um, so hopefully um, we will be able to talk about that today with the sun having shined upon us. So it's no surprise to any of you here today um, that we've just all, as Sydney Siders, sweltered through the hottest summer on record. So according to the Bureau of Meteorology, the mean summer temperature in the city was about three degrees Celsius above average. There were a record 26 days of at least 30 degrees Celsius and 11 days of at least 35 degrees. It wasn't just the days that were hot, it was the nights as well. Observatory Hill uh, in the city, there were no nights below 15 degrees Celsius over the whole summer period, and 58 nights reached at least 20 degrees, a low of 20 degrees. Um, and I have to say, uh, as a Canadian, I think it's hot when it's about 25 degrees. There was a summer a few years ago, I remember, it didn't really go above about 26, 27, and I was like, this is heaven, this is perfect. But when it starts getting 28, 29, 30, that's when I start complaining. So when we have those days when it goes up to 42 or 44, I do a lot of grumping. Um, my partner will tell you um, how much I grump when it gets to that type of temperature. So I was not a happy camper over this past um, summer. But my partner's from Adelaide, and for her, hot weather is what she's used to. So she would say, well, why are you having a session about heat? It's not a problem. It's a nice thing. Heat's great. Let's have more heat. So I guess that's something that we are going to discuss here today is, is it a bad thing? Is it a problem? Or is it just one of those things that exists and one of those things we just have to get used to and get on with it? Um, is there anything we can or should be doing? Or should we just kind of um, stop wearing suit jackets and start wearing thongs and T-shirts to work, which you know, might not be a terrible option? Um, so those are the guiding questions for the Sydney Ideas event tonight. And to tackle the big issues in a way that's a little bit more profound than me being grumpy, we have four eminent experts from the University of Sydney um, who are going to share their perspectives. And what I'm really pleased with as well, this is not four perspectives from uh, the same faculty or the same discipline within this university. We very explicitly brought together uh, a diverse set of experiences and perspectives uh, to talk about this topic today. So the first is Professor Tony Capon, who's Professor of Planetary Health at the School of Public Health here. He's a long career in academia, in health service in Western Sydney and engagement with international organizations. Adrian Keane is an academic and practicing urban planner. 
She's a member of the Urban Green Infrastructure Network, uh, which just completed an evidence-based project for the New South Wales Environmental Trust, arguing the case for uh, change to manage Sydney for better outcomes for people and the environment. Next up is Ollie Jay, who's senior lecturer in exercise and sports science in the Faculty of Health Sciences. He's a human thermoregulatory physiologist and director of the Thermal Ergonomics Laboratory Research Group. He also recently established the Climate Adaptation and Health Research Project node at the Charles Perkins Center. And finally, Jennifer Hamilton is a postdoctoral researcher in gender and cultural studies funded by the Seedbox, a Mr. Informus Environmental Humanitarian Collaboration. Her first book, This Contentious Storm, an eco-critical and performance history of King Lear, is out with Bloomsbury Academic in August. So please join me in welcoming our four panelists to the stage here. So in terms of format, in terms of format, I'll ask some questions of our panelists um, as individuals initially and then um, as a group, and then we'll have time to open it up for questions uh, from you in the audience as well. So um, when it's time for questions, please obviously start, start thinking about your questions now and direct your questions either to an individual panelist or to uh, the group as a whole. So we might start with uh, Tony. And just Tony, I was hoping you could just help set the scene a little bit. Um, what is the big picture here? What is happening globally and locally with regard to climate and its impacts? Thanks, Joel. It's, uh, it's a pleasure to be with you here tonight. And uh, I think the first thing to say is that climate change does have a range of human health impacts. And indeed, uh, the Lancet, the, the world's leading medical journal, argued in 2009 that climate, cha climate change is the greatest health challenge of the century. Now, that's a big call. And uh, uh, some may wonder why they would say that. And so I'll spend a few minutes just walking you through some of these relationships between health and climate change. So first, perhaps the most obvious relationships, uh, the direct health impacts. Uh, tonight, we'll be talking about the health impacts of heat waves. And you may recall that back in 2003, in uh, a heat wave in Europe, that there were tens of thousands of unnecessary deaths uh, during that heat wave. In this country, uh, back in 2009, uh, with the bushfires, the very severe bushfires in, uh, uh, in Victoria, there were more than 170 <coughs> people who died in the fires, but uh, Epidemiologists have demonstrated that there were in fact more people than that. There were several hundred people who died as the result of the heat and smoke uh, that accompanied those fires. So heat waves, bushfires, they're good examples of the direct effects of climate on health. And a changing climate will exacerbate these effects because climate change amplifies the frequency and severity of these extreme weather events. Tropical storms have health impacts. We look at the Philippines with the major typhoons. Uh, there uh, floods 
uh, at the moment uh, in the northern part of our state here, Lismore and surrounds. So that's, that's pretty straightforward that uh, these extreme events have health impacts, extreme climate events. But there are a range of other relationships and I'll touch on a few indirect ones. So when we think about uh, climate and physical systems and urbanisation. So in a city like Sydney, uh, on any given day, there's a certain amount of uh, air pollution, principally from the motor cars that we're using in the city. The extent of that air pollution, you know, the levels of air pollution, is affected by the weather conditions. So whether it's the accumulation of particle pollution uh, in relation to the weather uh, at, on the day, or uh, uh, the rates of ozone formation at the ground level on particularly hot days. So there's interactions between uh, the physical presence of air pollution and the weather and the risk to health. There's also interactions uh, at the biological level. So uh, during prolonged uh, periods of drought, uh, the uh, levels of soil moisture decrease uh, in uh, in our farming areas, this affects the yields from crops and the prices of uh, fresh fruit and vegetables and therefore uh, potentially the diet of people, particularly uh, people with lower incomes. Notably though, there are a range of what we call in epidemiology flow-on impacts. So we've got those direct ones, we've got the indirect ones, and then there's the flow-on consequences. And a couple of examples of this, if we go back to the soil moisture one, uh, the changes in soil moisture affect the crop yields and this affects the incomes of farmers and their mental well-being. And in this country and elsewhere in the world, uh, there is concern about rising suicide rates among farmers. Another example is the potential for displacement in relation to climate, uh, climate change. Uh, and uh, obviously in our region, uh, the changes that are happening in small Pacific Island countries and then north of Australia, uh, changes that are happening in South Asia uh, and risks of inundation in large cities uh, in the Asian deltas, uh, including Bangladesh uh, and elsewhere. So uh, direct, indirect and flow on impacts. The final point that I'd like to make tonight, Joel, is that there are very important uh, equity issues here. So people who are least responsible for climate change are the most affected and they're already being uh, affected much more severely. In this country, it's our indigenous communities, least responsible for greenhouse gas emissions, already the most affected. In other countries of our region and beyond, uh, people in low-income countries, at least responsible for climate change and the most effective way. Thank you. Great. Thanks very much, Tony. Uh, we'll move on to Adrian now. Adrian, as an urban planner, can you tell us a little bit how cities, their design and form, uh, impact uh, heat and how we uh, respond to it? That's a great starting question, isn't it? Well, I guess the, the first point to start with is actually to think about the things that we rely on in a, in a city and I think about the ecosystem services that uh, that we have that actually inform our climate, our microclimate, because cities have microclimates, Sydney's probably got quite a few microclimates, 
But there's a couple of things that we, we rely on. We rely on evaporation from surfaces and we rely on the um, transpiration from vegetation. So these are the things that make out our microclimate. So if we change any of those things, our, our microclimate uh, will change. You know, our temperatures change, wind patterns change, things like that. And I, I think when we look at, um, when we're talking about being hot in the city, we look at, at temperatures and maybe um, changes to temperatures are actually the most a pervasive thing for microclimates. And in the city, we talk about, you know, that heat, uh, urban heat island effect where temperatures are going up, but not just, um, you know, our maximum temperatures, that if you're Canadian and it's over 25, it's really hard, but for all of us, when we have higher minimum temperatures at night, uh, it's phenomenal to think how many hot nights that we've, we've already had. And sometimes you see things in the paper or in academic um, journals where we have these fantastic graphics of showing various um, uh, colours or intensities of red over uh, urban areas. And so you don't need to deforest, you know, Brazil to change climate, you can just make a city because cities, by their very function, change microclimates and they address those two things. First of all, we cover surfaces. So if we cover surfaces, and we do, because that's how we make cities, we, we build things, we build a lot of things and we cover surfaces and we land up having impervious surfaces. So we're missing out on that fantastic evaporation to be able to draw water out of the soil back into the atmosphere in a, a humidified way. There's no cooling of the ground when we have impervious surfaces. And not only is there no cooling of the ground, we're actually building up temperature in these impervious surfaces. And so things like beautiful, radiant, sunny, gorgeous 30 degree days are embedding radiant heat into these hard surfaces and then it's just all coming back at night. The other fabulous things that we do in cities is that we remove vegetation. And trees in particular, well, all sorts of vegetation are very important because they draw out heat from the soil. They do that through their roots when they're bringing up uh, water and then you have this you know, fantastic evapotranspiration that's happening uh, whereby uh, you know, uh, water is brought out into, into our atmosphere. That's what keeps us cool. It's a real cooling effect. So, you know, if you cover the ground and you get rid of our vegetation, then we're going to have a bit of um, a problem. The other thing is, is that as, as human beings, we're quite a hot species, aren't we? We drive cars, we have industry, we, um, we have big air conditioning units. And I'm not talking about the release of, um, you know, greenhouse gases here. These are exothermic activities. It's great when you're indoors with the air conditioner, but if you go outside and you're actually standing next to the air conditioning unit, you can feel the heat coming off that. So if you think about cities and the way that cities are expanding, the way we manage our cities, how we live in our cities, we're actually producing a lot of heat. Our activities for daily living um, add to that, to that heat. 
The other thing that we do in terms of the form of the cities and the design of the cities is that quite often what we've done is we've taken water away from where we live. Well, fair enough, we don't want to be flooded out. But we do things like we cover up our streams and um, uh, we create stormwater channels and we redirect water away from places. So we're losing the cooling um, impact uh, too with our, our water. But I think, uh, and the other thing we do too is, is how, where we decide things are going to be. So if we look at places like Sydney, to meet the needs perhaps of what we are, we keep releasing land for development. And so as development goes, we have more impervious services, less vegetation, and the hotter we come. But we'll talk about other things later, I think. Great. Thank you, Adrian. Um, we'll move on to Ollie now. So, Ollie, I wanted to ask, how would you respond to my wife, who says that um, heat is good, there's no problem here? I'm very familiar with Canadians, <laughs> 10 years now myself. So, um, I think the, the first um, issue that uh, we need to get across to, to the general public is how deadly heat waves can be, how extreme heat events. So, most people are quite surprised to hear that every year heat waves kill more people than all of the natural disasters combined. So over the last few weeks, uh, last few months, we've heard about flooding, we've heard about cyclones, we've heard about earthquakes, but all of these events will kill fewer people than, uh, to combined than, than heat waves will. So I think that's an important thing to, uh, to keep in mind. And I think maybe the reason that it's out of the public eye is, is really because um, they're not visually dramatic events. They're not things that are played out, acute events that are played out on, on television. And we have people who are effectively dying uh, at home quietly and uh, typically alone as well, or often alone at least. So, and uh, the death toll isn't really realized until a, much, uh, a, a long time after the, the, the extreme heat event. Um, to Tony's point, um, heat waves in particular do strike people uh, particularly hard um, in uh, less fortunate circumstances. So they really do widen the inequality gaps that we see um, uh, in society. So the people who um, are most likely to die in heat waves are people who, who can't afford air conditioning. So we know that you're 35 times more likely to survive a heat wave uh, given the same health status if you have air conditioning compared to if you don't. And the main reason that people can't uh, don't have air conditioning is because they can't afford it. Um, people with uh, pre-existing medical conditions such as cardiovascular disease, um, renal disease, uh, diabetes, these are the people that we typically see uh, more uh, proportionally represented in the, in the, uh, in the death toll uh, in heat waves. So they can be quite deadly. Um, that's not to say that everybody's equally um, uh, susceptible to, to these negative events, of course. Um, we've been asking about how the body responds to these. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So <laughs> next part of that was, what, how does the body actually respond to this extreme type of heat? Right, so yeah, um, I think that's a, an important question for people to try to understand, and not least my students, of course. Um, so uh, the human body regulates their, the, the internal body temperature around about 37 degrees Celsius. This is typically the, the temperature that we're trying to maintain. And the way in which we defend this is uh, we do it through the different avenues. So um, the, the primary one is, uh, or the, the first one that we, that, we, that we use is something called cutaneous vasodilation. So this is the way in which we, we autonomically um, widen the blood vessels, the diameter of our blood vessels in our skin. And this allows hot blood from inside our body to flow close to the skin surface, which will then permit greater heat dissipation to the surrounding environment. But that uh, has a limited capacity to, 
to, to, to dissipate heat to the environment. So uh, the next way in which we obviously uh, lose heat is through sweating. It's not sweating per se that allows us to lose heat, it's the evaporation of sweat. So um, that happens typically when um, our body temperature will rise uh, a little higher. So if we're around about 37.5, 38 degrees Celsius, we'll find that people will be sweating profusely and be maximally vasodilated. Now, those physiological responses really give rise to a number of problems from a health perspective in heat waves. First of all, when we're vasodilating, so when we're widening those blood vessels to the skin, in order to maintain central blood pressure to stop us passing out, our heart rate has to go up, or our cardiac output has to go up. So our heart has to beat more times every minute, and if there's an underlying infirmity, then this will kind of be exposed, or more likely to be exposed. And we think that's probably one of the reasons why people with cardiovascular disease are actually um, uh, uh, hit the hardest during extreme heat waves. But it's, it's somewhat counterintuitively, not because they necessarily have a very high core temperature, it's the way in which their body is defending against the, the heat insult that gives rise to this cardiovascular strain and then potentially um, uh, these cardiovascular events. Um, if we're exposed to heat for a long time and we're sweating for a long time and we're not replacing that sweat with ingested fluids, then uh, that can give rise to graded dehydration. Now, maybe we'll talk about that a little later on, but um, I do feel that the, um, the emphasis on hydration is probably a little overemphasized in the public health guidance that we receive um, during extreme heat events, but maybe we can talk about that a little later on. Um, ultimately, if we can't lose heat, so we have some disorders that um, really blunt our ability to sweat, um, people with spinal cord injuries, for example, uh, people on certain prescription medication that interferes with the ability to sweat. If we store so much heat inside the body, our body temperature will increase and eventually we might suffer heat exhaustion or ultimately heat stroke. So heat exhaustion is, is indicated by symptoms such as dizziness, nausea and, and ultimately uh, a collapse. And then um, heat stroke is a more uh, severe form of that if we reach an internal core temperature of around about 40 or 41 degrees Celsius. Which is quite extraordinary, really, considering that our resting core temperature, everybody in this room right now, is at around about 37 degrees Celsius. So we only need a rise of internal core temperature of between 3 and 4 degrees Celsius before we experience uh, potentially a high risk of heat stroke, which can ultimately kill people as well. So there's lots of different ways in which the, uh, the environmental heat can really affect human health. Right. Thanks, Roy. That was a, a little bit scary, actually. Um, <laughs> I think I'm sweating here just hearing that. Um, <laughs> um, General, move on. You know, we've heard other perspectives. Um, I was wondering how your field complements what we've just learned about heat waves specifically and increased extreme weather events uh, more broadly. Okay. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me on the panel. Um, my field is uh, environmental humanities and specifically focusing on it uh, from a feminist perspective. So my work is uh, complementary, I believe, but maybe I need to spend a little bit of time explaining how so. Um, for those of you who don't know, the environmental humanities is uh, an interdisciplinary field in, in sort of art research um, that approaches environmental questions from philosophical um, political and um, I suppose speculative perspective. So what I mean is that we, um, although you know, thinking about the human body in this really terrifying and extraordinary way, um, thinking about how we might plan cities differently and thinking about uh, health concerns are really important. Um, 
environment and humanities kind of suggests that there's also a, a massive sort of philosophical or existential challenge presented by the environmental crisis in all of its kind of forms, and that we need to really rigorously interrogate what that might mean for us and how we live with each other, how we live with other um, critters like uh, whales and dogs and chickens, um, and how we how we respond to or react to things like storms and heat waves and beautiful autumn days like today. Um, it's also a, a socio-political challenge because, as we've heard from both um, Ollie and, and Tony, uh, uh, the more marginalised people are the ones that are bearing the effects. Although we're all in this together in some ways, that we is, is, is different and um, dynamic and we really have to think through how we're in it together differently and the ways in which we can respond um, we, you know, taking into account these uh, socio-political challenges at the same time. So we can't just suddenly say, oh, now we've got this one issue that we've got to deal with it as, as, um, and set everything else aside. All of the kind of baggage of, uh, of our society as it is um, comes with it and, and environmental humanities is trying to grapple with that as well. And, and in a more um, light-hearted sense, perhaps, um, although uh, the environmental crisis is scary and um, dangerous and um, it, and it's also you know they're tragic already for people who've been displaced by climate change rising sea levels of the species who've become extinct um, it's also kind of an opportunity to, to sort of speculate on the kind of world we might want to have um, and you find that visual arts poetry literature and these kinds of fields in the humanities are, are becoming really important for uh, offering alternative ways of being, doing, thinking, making, relating, loving, inhabiting the world um, that uh, you know we might not think about if we're charged with a very specific task of, I don't know, um, cooling a room so people don't have a heart attack, <laughs> um, which is obviously really important, but at the same time we need to be thinking about these speculative possibilities as well. And so that's kind of what my field is charged with and everyone who's working within it is doing it slightly differently and my particular contribution is coming under the title Weathering the City, so it's right on topic for tonight. Um, thinking about how the weather is, like what you were saying um, Adrian, we've paved over our cities, we've cut down trees, we've sort of in some ways eliminated nature from the city and we, we do think about this distinction between the urban space as being a human construct as opposed to like the, the national park is where, where we go to experience nature but weather is where these kinds of forces are really felt in the city and so my work is trying to uh, look at the ways in which we are relating to weather in cities already so the kinds of infrastructure that is um, producing particular lifestyles that we enjoy in wealthy cities like Sydney, um, and then also thinking about how we might want to relate to the weather differently. And, and that's kind of I, like potentially quite a big question, because the ways in which we work, uh, they're quite in cities anyway. Um, we're in, inside air-conditioned buildings, we're in offices, we're sheltered, um, we're seated, we're, you know, are there ways in which we could relate to the weather differently that um, involve working outside or involve like quite radically reimagining career trajectories and the kinds of work that we do. Um, and so that's, I suppose that's how my work fits in. Um, it's, it's in a creative space as well as a philosophical space. And um, thank you for having me tonight. Great.
Thank you. It, it, Jen, that kind of preempts the, the next question a little bit. We, we've talked about some of the challenges and some of the issues, but I'd like to move on to um, solutions. So what can we actually do uh, about these heat waves? Um, I guess, should we all install swimming pools and more air conditioners and run them all 24-7? Um, what solutions do you have in your respective fields? Um, Adrian, do you want to start with that one? Sure. <clears throat> I liked, Jennifer, what you were saying about the fact that this is, these are complex issues. There's not one, one solution and there's many different aspects to things for sure. And planning, you know, is one of those really complex, complex tasks. Um, and with planning, we can look at things from spatial perspectives. We can make decisions at lot level or we can make things at, at regional level. We could, um, you know, put in lots of rules and regulations. But I think the overarching thing for having a new look is actually convincing people that we actually do need a new approach and a change to business. And that seems to be very hard uh, at the moment in terms of uh, planning policy. One of the things I think about is when we look at the, some of the passive solutions that we could have, we, don't, we can't air condition the outside, but there's lots of great passive solutions that we could bring into our cities, uh, reinstating things like softfalls and, and more plants. But I think one of the things I find terribly interesting is that green seems to be an anti-word at the moment. So if we talk about bringing green into the city, often you'll find in the policy circles that there's a view that this is really, you know, for Chardonnay um, swilling greenies, not something really that's important across the, the cities. Trees in some regard are seen to be high risk. Um, councils have trouble funding uh, their maintenance. We're finding that, our, say, our residential lots are getting smaller, so we've got smaller lots, bigger houses. People don't want trees in their in their gardens anymore. So there's got to be some sort of shift to understand that the the passive stuff that we can do to redesign our cities and benefit our cities is actually, you know, not a not a greedy thing. That's the first thing I'd, I'd say. The other thing I was going to suggest is that we all need to play a lot more golf. What we're finding in our cities is that some of our great open spaces with lots of trees and great vegetation that contribute to our uh, climate in the city is actually our golf courses. And they are under threat, and they're under threat for development because maybe, you know, membership may be going down, these golf courses are in um, very um, uh, developable areas. So I know it's a bit tongue-in-cheek, but if we think outside that, it's about making sure that we are retaining existing ecological values because of the ecosystem services that they give back, back to us. The other notion is, is that open space, depending on its configuration, there's enough proof out there to show it that it has a cooling effect. So, you know, sometimes we go to parks to sit under a tree or we want to live next to a park because there are these benefits. So, um, don't tell my husband I said play more golf, but I just think it's something that we need to be looking at is that retention of our beautiful open spaces. 
The other thing is, is what can we do in places that have lost trees, especially for, um, uh, say, suburbs that don't, aren't that terribly wealthy, for example, that can't afford air conditioning systems? Well, we could plant trees, especially on, say, western elevations of homes, for example, or get more street trees uh, back into our roads to provide shade. There's lots of things that we can do. There's also fantastic technologies about green infrastructure, getting more water uh, into our city, and I think we may have all heard about green roofs and green walls. Some of those look a bit um, you know, modern and contemporary and, and helps to sell a building, but there's enough science now to show us that the technologies involved in green roofs and green walls actually can contribute to minimising the amount of energy that we're using inside those buildings. So it increases our thermal comfort, but actually contributes back to those very important ecosystem services that we could do, uh, that we rely on. And the last point from a boring old statutory planner who's me, I think we have to stop releasing land for development. We should stop. I don't, in my personal opinion, I think some of these things that we're talking about at the moment in New South Wales about um, affordable housing has nothing to do with housing supply. There's lots of housing researchers will tell you there's lots of development applications that have been approved, but the buildings aren't being built. But there's a pressure to release these lots of land and keep spreading our cities, and that I think is a fatal mistake. I'm not sure if anyone's asking future homeowners if they want to live way, way away with no um, amenity or anything. And I think this sort of political decision uh, will really contribute to making Sydney an even hotter place. Thank you, Jen. That's the, the city perspective on solutions. Ollie, do you want to talk about, um, I guess, personal, individual responses? Yes, certainly. Um, I, I mean, I think just following up from what Adrian has just said, um, I mean, I, certainly we can't air condition outside, even though they're, I think they're trying to do that in the Qatar World Cup. But I'm not entirely sure that we should be as reliant on air conditioning of our living spaces indoors, in the indoor environments as well. So um, if we, we know that there's, a, there's a, an enormous environmental impact of air conditioning use um, around the world. Um, I think there was, uh, not, just that, not just in Australia, but in the United States, for example, I think um, uh, more CO2 is generated uh, from, uh, from energy that's consumed for cooling um, buildings and vehicles in the United States than is used in the entire continent of Africa for everything. So that's, that's the type of scale that we're talking about in terms of air conditioning use and, and the energy use. Um, uh, it also puts a massive strain on our, on our electricity infrastructure as well. Um, some data that was released by um, uh, one of the electricity boards uh, in, in, in New South Wales in the, one of the heat waves we had in November in 2015. Um, I always showed this slide and I'll try to demonstrate this point. And then you can see the oscillation in electricity demand throughout the day as, and throughout the week as the temperatures get hotter and hotter. And then on the hottest day, which is 43 degrees Celsius on the Friday, um, the energy de uh, demand was 50% higher at the same time of day. And this was on the same, you could compare it to a weekday er uh, earlier in the week where presumably all normal activity was the same. So you can assume that the 
the majority of that increase in demand was simply due to cooling. So, um, and of course, there's, there are the marginalised people in society who don't have access to, to air conditioning, of course. Um, so we're trying to develop some, um, some ecologically valid uh, low resource solutions. So Nate Morris is in, in, in the audience, he's a PhD student who's doing a lot of work in this particular space. And uh, we're really interested in looking at using an electric fan, so the humble electric fan. If you compare the, um, the amount of energy that is used, or amount of electricity that's used compared to a central air conditioner, then you're comparing 5,000 watts versus between 10 and 50 watts. So um, targeting the individual for cooling as opposed to trying to cool the entire space um, is probably a much better solution. Um, one thing we can do and one thing we're looking into potentially recommending is trying to figure out if you could use air conditioning and augmented airflow across the skin in concert. So you can achieve the same thermal comfort, uh, the same level of productivity in a workplace, the same levels of skin temperature, core temperature, uh, lower levels of sweating um, in, uh, in a warmer environment. So you can set your thermostat to 25 or 26 degrees Celsius and have augmented airflow with a fan across the skin and it'll give you the same response as it would do if you cooled the air to 19 or 18 degrees Celsius, whatever people are setting their air conditioners to. And, um, uh, and you basically get the same thing. And um, I think this is, if, you, if we then kind of scale up the amount of uh, energy one would save and the, uh, the reduction of CO2 uh, output and the uh, reduction in, in, um, in, in electricity demand, um, I think this is a very promising solution. We're also looking at other um, things that people can do in their in, in, a, in a low resource environment. So we're looking at uh, putting your, your feet in a, in a tub of, of cold water. That seems to be really quite effective. Or uh, wetting the skin uh, with, with a sponge, which allows you to evaporate without having to, to, to sweat, and you don't have the associated physiological strain. Um, and the, the efficacy of those particular interventions are dependent on the type of heat wave that you're in, but maybe we'll talk about that with a later point when we're talking about different environments and different locations. Tony. Yeah. Uh, thanks, Joel. Perhaps just to build on what um, Ollie and Adrian have said. So over this last summer, uh, quite naturally, uh, during these very hot days, uh, people switched. People who had air conditioning switched on their air conditioning, and uh, I think uh, most of us would be aware that uh, there was concerns about whether we had enough energy in, in the state and that the risks of brownouts or actual blackouts uh, in New South Wales as a result of this. And remembering that this is with Sydney's population at about 5 million at the moment, uh, while uh, our state is planning to grow the city to about 8 million quite quickly in the next couple of decades. So what might be ahead? So perhaps it's natural that our politicians are saying, well, we need more coal-fired power stations, you know, we need more energy. But I think the point that's being made uh, here by both Ollie and Adrian is that there are practical things we can do on the demand side. The debate about energy security in Australia has been largely about the supply side. It's just that we need more, we need a lot more. But what we're talking about here tonight is how to manage demand, how to reduce the demand by greening the city, making room for nature, cooling it down naturally, and using fans inside homes rather than using air conditioners. Because if you think back, if you're as old as me, uh, 50 years ago uh, in Sydney, there would have been barely anybody with air conditioning. But now, perhaps half of the homes in Sydney have some form of reverse cycle air conditioning.
what's ahead as we grow the population and as the climate continues to change, then uh, we really need to be much more reflective on what we're doing and think both about energy demand as well as energy supply. I just want, just want to add one, one, one point to that, Tony. Um, I think maybe one of the reasons that people are, are, are reverting to using air conditioning as opposed to things like fans is that up until quite recently, or even now, they're actually being discouraged um, for use during extreme heat events. Um, in terms of the public health advice? In terms of the public health advice that we're getting from organisations such as the World Health Organisation, the Centers for Disease Control uh, in, uh, in the United States, um, uh, Certain governments, uh, the government of Victoria, for example, discourages um, fan use during during heat waves, and I can, I can briefly explain why they think um, it's based on the notion of, of, of a fan-assisted oven. So, probably most of us have an oven that, uh, and you have the fan on, and it accelerates the cooking time of your turkey that's in the oven. And the reason is that you're adding heat to at a greater rate to the turkey. Heats up quicker, um, uh, but unlike a turkey in the oven, we secrete sweat onto the skin surface. And when we augment airflow across the skin surface, it accelerates the evaporation of that sweat. And there's actually a balancing act between the increase in evaporation and the increase in, in heat that you're adding to the body. And we've done a series of studies that's demonstrated quite clearly that uh, fan use is, is, is more, more than safe. It's very beneficial at air temperatures up to as high as 42 degrees Celsius. In fact, we showed that people are better off with, or cooler with fans at 42 degrees Celsius than they are without a fan at 36 degrees Celsius. And right now, people are being told to turn fans off at 35 degrees Celsius. That kind of gives you a bit of Okay, so everyone has to get some fans in their bedroom, and if you've ever wondered why you're different than a cooked turkey, now, now you understand. <laughs> and, and perhaps one final point on that, that uh, it, it's also perhaps natural that the manufacturers of air conditioners uh, don't want that advice to change. There's vested interests from the manufacturers that that public health advice stays in place. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so the, the, those are important uh, questions about how we might intervene uh, in, in relation to this. Jen. I, I just have a, a point, and, and it, it comes with the caveat that obviously there are dangers involved in being too hot. Um, you know, Ollie's sitting right next to me, so I can't make this claim without that caveat. But the, there is a sense in a lot of debates around cooling in... Um, in summer, um, that, that sort of have a, an assumption or an implicit assumption that we need to have a, an equilibrium, and that's kind of both an affective equilibrium or emotional, and you don't want to be too grumpy, for instance, <laughs> um, and, and a, a thermal one. And that there might be some scope um, to say that maybe a little bit of discomfort or um, you know, some kind of challenge to that effective equilibrium is going to be necessary. And I mean, that's, I can say that maybe because I'm not a politician. or um, But I, I do think that those kinds of questions where you just push back on the, the kind of well-privileged, well-insulated lifestyles that we do lead, which are leading to increased demand, um, it's, it's that sort of side that really needs to be uh, critiqued um, and maybe... Maybe we have to give up something as well. Um, and I do think that there are extraordinary technological solutions. I'm not trying to advocate for returning to the caves, which is what often people on my side of the debate are, 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 are critiqued for doing. I think that we need to learn how to live with technology, but um, that maybe discomfort and, and grump uh, are going to be part of the course as well. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um,
We've spoken mostly, I guess, using Sydney as our frame, um, but I wanted to change the shift a little bit to get perspectives on um, how we might think about heat in the context of Broken Hill or Adelaide or more tropical climate like Townsville, and then thinking further afield about Jakarta or Mumbai uh, or other cities like that. How will heat and climate affect some of these other locations? Do we think about them differently? Tony, do you want to start on that yeah, one? Maybe I'll lead off having uh, just spent four years living in Kuala Lumpur, uh, which is a, a rapidly growing city in the tropical zone and uh, a rapidly changing environment with um, uh, the uh, uh, growth of population, uh, people living in uh, uh, dwellings, buildings, uh, often uh, apartment buildings that are not appropriate for the climate. The historical um, Malay house uh, was perhaps reminiscent of a Queenslander, you know, a timber home with uh, verandas around it uh, and was often uh, uh, sheltered in the shade of trees. Now, um, where I lived uh, in, in uh, Kuala Lumpur, it, it was an air-conditioned tower and uh, uh, when the power went off at night, uh, you woke up within about 10 minutes because uh, it got hot so quickly inside there. It was almost unlivable uh, without air conditioning. And in addition to that, uh, lots of motor cars uh, uh, providing additional uh, heat in the city, removing trees as the city expands. Uh, you look across the channel at, um, at Singapore and they are trying to do things differently in the same uh, uh, climatic zone. Uh, they have grown a lot more trees, uh, they have a subway system, so there's not uh, so many motor cars on the road producing all of those hot emissions. Uh, they're, they're trying to uh, build a more resilient city uh, in, in Singapore. So, so I think if we look across that tropical zone where increasing numbers of people are living, uh, there are things that can be done uh, in those zones as well. Adrian, do you want to comment on other cities? There's such application for the, some of the te technolo uh, technology we can use. You know, I mentioned before about green infrastructure. And I guess that reflects on some of the things you were just saying too, Tony. So it doesn't really matter where you are, there can be different ways of building a building or arranging space uh, that would help people cope with heat. And I think, um, well, for us here in, in Sydney, I think it's all very new, but there are lots of places in Europe uh, and some Asian cities too which are really going great guns in terms of implementing uh, these wonderful green, green infrastructure and green roofs and, and green walls. I don't think I'm well placed to think about Broken Hill in particular because it has such a fabulous reputation of being a hot town, but it is also reminiscent of once a place that was uh, built for the conditions with, you know, the passive architecture. And I think uh, for those places, that's probably, and, and trees, uh, it's the best outcome. Ollie? Yeah, I can uh, um, probably comment a bit more um, on the influence of heat on work productivity. So um, in, um, in places in Southeast Asia, in places like Cambodia and uh, Vietnam, there's been um, a, bit, a bit of work there that's done, 
that's demonstrated the impact of environmental heat on, uh, at certain times of the year, on work productivity. And the way in which this really um, manifests itself is that people have a fixed amount of work that they're going to get done in a day, and they simply have to work longer hours. So, um, so in terms of the amount of time they can spend at home with their children and so on and so forth, that has an impact on them. Uh, if it's uh, over a fixed work schedule, then obviously they're going to be able to produce less, and ultimately, depending on who's employing them, they get paid less as well. So those are the kind of impacts that we see of, 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 of heat uh, um, in Southeast Asia in, in, in the, uh, the workforce. We also see the same thing in Australia. There was a, a study that was published in um, uh, Nature Climate Change about three years ago that reported that um, uh, environment, environmental heat was responsible for, I think, more than uh, $5 billion of, uh, of lost, um, or cost the economy, the Australian economy, more than $5 billion a year in, in lost productivity. And the, and the way in which this um, uh, arises is actually not through absenteeism, but something called presenteeism, where um, people will come to work, but they're not as motivated to work as, at the same intensity that they would do uh, when it's cooler. So that's a, a, another consideration. Uh, the last thing I'll probably comment on in terms of different locations, and I'm probably going to focus more, well, I suppose I can talk about different, different places beyond Australia, but even within Australia, uh, we have very different types of heat waves. Um, in Adelaide, it can be very, very hot and very, very dry. So it could be 48 degrees Celsius and less than 5% relative humidity. Whereas in in, in Townsville, it very rarely gets above 34, 35 degrees Celsius, but it will be 70, 80% relative humidity. And those challenges are very different from a, from, a, from a physiological perspective and ultimately from a health perspective as well. Because in a very hot and dry environment, you will sweat lots, but all that sweat will immediately evaporate because the, the drive for evaporation is so high. So if you focus on trying to keep the skin uh, wet uh, in terms of an intervention, then that would be quite wise. Um, in a very hot, humid environment, then your skin is completely covered with sweat anyway, and the problem is you can't get off the skin and it can't evaporate. So those are the type of considerations that we need to, need to take when we're looking at uh, different environments and, and, um, and different interventions. Jen, did you want to...? Um, I, I can't really comment on heat waves in other cities, but um, I am interested in the ways in which cities are um, responding or maybe building resilience in, 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 in terms of infrastructure. And one of my case studies is the, the big UC wall on Lower Manhattan, which is designed to um, protect against rising sea levels and storm surges like the one that um, they saw during Hurricane Sandy, which are kind of predicted to get worse. Um, and the kind of logic of those resilience projects. So resilience is kind of an important uh, concept in, insofar as we don't want to just sort of roll over and be bowled over by the storm or, or the, the, the storm surge or the big waves or the heat waves. We want to be able to kind of bounce back and continue being a civilization. Um, but at the same time, resilience can be practiced in a range of different ways. And I think that the Big U project is really interesting because it's what it's sort of this logic of fortification, like trying to build a seawall in order to protect the society that's there intact, untransformed. Um, and I do wonder if that is, is the only way forward or if there are ways in which resilience could be built in a more responsive way to the environment. Um, it, it, I must say that the, the design for the wall is beautiful. It's not just like a big brick wall. It's like a very interactive, um, well-landscaped uh, 
recreation space, but at the same time it's undergirding this kind of same logic of, of fortification. Um, what else What else would we do is, a, is an important question. Thank you. I'd like to uh, open it up to our audience now. Um, if people have questions or comments, and please do either direct the questions to one of our panelists, or if it's a more general question, um, please state that as well. We'll start with this gentleman here. Thank you very much. My first <coughs> sorry, question is that um, with the Cyclone Debbie the report being released by Deloitte, about uh, it will take around $1 billion. Uh, and then they mention about till 2015 and 2050, it will take around 17 billion for the government infrastructure to rebuild those um, those premises and all those infrastructure spending. So, uh, especially from the Dr. Adrian, I have a question is about uh, the urban planning and the planning laws, because still the um, the area which is impacted by those um, catastrophe. Um, still, we don't have any uh, any planning laws because still the those looking onto the wind pressure, but there has no been any um, uh, proximity that put it for the wind and hail, which is direct impact right now is happening. So anything is happening from that perspective. Um, one, the so second thing is you mentioned a very good point about the the, the golf courses. And I've seen where I'm living is the, all the Edmonton Park is totally built onto the golf courses. People buy the places and then see this beautiful, nice golf course in front of them. And then all of a sudden they see the golf, is, golf course is gone. All the ponds, when they put it, the new planning and the, of the plan they buy it and then later on they get to know it's gone. So how the planning and how the planners are looking, those kind of impacts and how it's impacting. Thank you. Thanks. Adrian. Thank you for those. Small question. Um, uh, it was interesting when you were talking about uh, Cyclone Debbie and, and uh, I guess it's about vulnerability um, and our investment in infrastructure and we have these natural disasters and you know we all log in and, and fix things and it is going to cost us more and more. There's a whole risk um, involved. From an, a planning perspective, and I think about it in terms of land use, Harks back maybe to my comment where we're going to have to start making some decisions as a community in regards to deciding what can and cannot happen on land. And one of the big challenges in our country here is that, you know, if you own land, you basically can do anything you want with it, right? There are some rules. So if we say to people, look, you're within 200 metres of the shoreline or you're within the cyclonic thing, you know, really you shouldn't, you shouldn't be building there because um, you shouldn't be um, right out on, you know, into the Blue Mountains National Park because, you, you know, you're going to get, your house is going to get burnt down. And not only that, the whole community needs to be paying to help you out. It's a much bigger debate than just planning. But I do know that there has been some comment about saying to people, all right, if you want to build there because you've got the right to build there, you've just got to know that in 20 years, your house is going to fall into the sea. And so we still haven't really got to that point of understanding when it becomes completely our responsibility as a landowner or the responsibility of the society to deal with those, those, those issues. And in regards to the golf course, um, one, um, it comes down to who owns the land. So if if it is a, a golf 
courses owned, you know, by a private individual or a, you know, a, a group, um, they can sell their land and, and, you know, ask for rezoning. And, and right now in Sydney, if you're, you know, within 150 kilometres of the CBD, you probably will get uh, rezoning, uh, especially if you're close to a centre, you know, a railway line or a bus lane. Um, the thing that can save golf courses or any of our parks is if they are community lands owned by the Crown. But one of the things that we do have, unfortunately, in our rules is we can get around some of these protection mechanisms for lands to be able to rezone them for um, usually residential development because that's where the money is at the moment. Thank you. Take one here. Uh, thanks for a fascinating and multi-valenced um, discussion. I have a favour to ask the panel and then a question. And the favour is, you're an extremely eminent panel. In future, when you're asked, what do we do, could you please start by saying reduce carbon emissions? Okay. <laughs> be really grateful. Um, the second thing is, let, let's imagine, if I can invite a thought experiment, um, you've talked uh, in, in a principled sense about the difference, about inequality differences. Imagine two people, um, one of them lives in a harbourside mansion, let's call that person Malcolm for the sake of argument, um, and the other one lives out in Penrith, which I understand is the hottest place in Sydney. In the course of a day, a hot day, what kind of differences would you expect would that would we see in their lives? I want to start with that one. <laughs> so Mal Malcolm versus someone in Penrith. Right. Well um, uh, okay. Um, well access to um, solutions would be very different, um, I would think. So um, uh, maybe somebody living not, not all people living in Penrith uh, uh, have um, reduced access to, uh, to certain solutions, but uh, if we're comparing um, the average potentially, um, I would expect uh, Malcolm probably doesn't have a great deal of concern about turning his air conditioning on, and maybe, uh, I don't know, maybe he leaves it on all day to keep the dogs cool or something, he goes to work. Um, which is another interesting question, by the way, do we leave air conditioning on for our pets, but that's another question for another day. Um, uh, yeah. in, in terms of um, uh, pre-existing uh, illnesses potentially, so um, I think that uh, in certain parts mm -hmm. of Greater Sydney we see a greater representation of uh, people with certain medical um, issues. Um, probably the, uh, the, the layout of the house, I should imagine, from an uh, architectural point of view would be different. Adrian can probably comment on that. Well, it, it, well, it could. Yeah, it could it's, all, be. it's all very high pressure, isn't it? Yeah. Well, what I was going to say about um, Penrith, even though it was hot, you know, they've got a lovely river uh, down there, you know. So Malcolm and and Penrith Malcolm. person, you know, you know, they've both they've both got rivers. So I, I guess it depends on which lens you're asking that question. But if it's about heat, it'll be a different type of heat. Uh, if it's about equity, it would depend, of course, on the individual, but what services are around. Um, Malcolm doesn't have a nice air-conditioned Westfield to go to, but the people in Penrith might. I assume the person in Penrith can get out can of the house get and go there. there. That's yeah. right, that's right. So, yes, there's definitely a lot of um, both environmental and equity issues there. Yeah. Um, 
you are talking about always to cool down the city. But I would say start with not heating up the city. And um, that, of course, requires behavior change. To give an example, and that for me is ununderstandable, why not put bicycle lanes everywhere? Everywhere. Not just a bicycle painted on a road where cars push you away, but real separate bicycle ways. And people going by bike to work. Even Paris and even Rome can do it. So why can't Sydney do that? The um, second thing is you're talking about going into a nice and cool Westfield. If I go into a Westfield, I have to remember in summer to bring a winter jacket with me because otherwise I grow too cold. So why not indeed changing behavior and accepting that it doesn't need to be 18 degrees in summer in a mall, but that 24 is fine in summer and that 20 is fine in winter, for instance. So that behavior change both in the planning of the city by bicycle roads and if the behavior of people in accepting a bit more, for instance, some temperature would reduce the heating up. And that's, for me, the place to start. I think we've been talking about behavioural changes to a certain extent, um, and I utterly agree. So um, from an air conditioning point of view, we can just look around everybody here right now, and we've got people wearing orange coats, we've got a gentleman with his sleeves rolled up, um, a gentleman with a short sleeve shirt, and uh, so a number of people that are probably um, uh, really comfortable in this room right now, from a thermal point of view, of course, um, it's probably limited, or we're all behavioural, we've got a coat all wrapped around this person up there. <laughs> and um, so, so um, we, we do behaviourally adapt to the environment that we're put in, but what's kind of ridiculous is that we focus on cooling the, the space instead of focusing on the person. And if we focus on the person, we're going to get more comfort, we're going to get better productivity in the workplace, because uh, it's, going to be, it's going to be geared towards what that person particularly wants, and it's going to be cheaper, and then the amount of CO2 that we're going to be belching out is going to be low. So um, I absolutely agree, and I also agree with your comments about bike lanes. It's almost third world in Sydney. From a yeah, 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 absolutely. Could, couldn't agree more about that, and because uh, as uh, the motor car heats up the city, you know, there's, there's all those hot emissions, and if we end up building more motorways in Sydney, as the population grows, we're locking in a hotter city as part of that. So these sorts of questions are not necessarily being discussed as widely as they should be about the future of Sydney and what might the possible pathways be. One of the things about cycling, I'm, I'm a cyclist and... Um, and cycling in summer in Sydney is really physiologically intense. Um, and, I, and partly that has to do with the way our workday is oriented. Um, and so in order to pick up my son in time for daycare, I, I'm cycling you know, down really, really hot roads in peak afternoon sun. And so that, you know, I think, I mean, I totally advocate more cycling lanes that would make me fear less for my life when I'm on the road. But at the same time, there is also all of these kind of structural things, like it would be so much nicer if I could cycle home from work at a different time of day, or, you know, there could be a totally different, almost circadian rhythm to the way that our days are oriented. Um, and so that, that is something that we might want to think through as well as having more bike lanes. Mm. Um, perhaps, oh, sorry, related to that, you know, in, in many hot places, 
there's like a close down in the middle of the day, you know, like a, a siesta time. But uh, with in our country, in Australia, we've never never chosen to do that in any of the climatic zones. We've just stuck with the same uh, approach to to policies around uh, times of working. I'll take a question here, and then in front, and then there. Hello, my name is Stephen Corbett. I'm Director of Public Health in Western Sydney. We've just had our hottest February on record, uh, and we're usually five to ten degrees hotter than the rest of Sydney, as Tony well knows. And um, uh, the thing I worry about the most, however, uh, normally we get about a 10% increase in mortality on hot days, which is about the same, interestingly, as the number of deaths attributed to cold in the winter. Uh, but the thing I worry about the most is the avoidance of a heatwave catastrophe, uh, like Chicago 95, Paris 2003, Moscow 2010, which were related to uh, uh, heatwaves of more than a week in duration, unremitting heat, especially at night. We seem to be saved in Sydney, at least for the moment, by the Wollongong doctor every evening. But but I'd be interested to know, especially from Ollie, about about because that's the event I think we need to prepare for, and interestingly, research more about the probability of it happening. Because because um, uh, 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 from what I can tell, we hardly ever get events like that, but they do in Broken Hill. They do in Walgett, but, but we don't get uh, uh, epidemics of mortality there. So I think there's quite a lot of research to be done to prepare ourselves properly for more heat. Mm -hmm. uh, thank you for the question. Um, yeah, uh, and I, I think that, um, I mean, I'm not, I'm not an epidemiologist or a climatologist, so I can't comment on the, on the risk of it, of, of it happening in the future um, or from a predictive point of view. But I, I would imagine that um, a severe event like that, given the, the trend that we've been seeing in the, in the last 20 years, one would think potentially it's inevitable. Um, in terms of being prepared for it, I think it's a very important point. Um, I think uh, it, it seems as though the research supports that if we are able to uh, generate um, guidance, to, to, we can reach people. So we can change behaviour. I think the, the, the research has, has demonstrated that. The research has really well demonstrated who are most at risk as well, so people with pre-existing illnesses and so on and so forth. What the research hasn't done so far is really well understood why these people are most at risk. And the reason that is so important is because we need to understand why so we can develop the, the most uh, effective uh, mitigation strategy. And um, I mean that is certainly work that we're doing in, in, in our lab here at the University of Sydney, and it's something that uh, is uh, also a topic of, of, of interest for several research groups around the world. Um, I, as I mentioned in my opening um, talk, um, I think that the reason that people with cardiovascular disease, for example, are, uh, are, are perishing in heat waves more often is because of the fact that, that the way in which we're responding to the heat. And the thing is, typically, if we look at the mortality and morbidity data or the, the epidemiological papers that are associated with that, we're typically told that they die of dehydration or they die of heat stroke or, or heat-related illness. And I'm not entirely sure that's true because it's, it's, it, sounds, it, it sounds, like I said, counterintuitive that you don't die of the heat because you're too hot. It's, I think it's the way in which we're responding to it. I think a lot, of more, a lot more research is, is needed around that space in order to develop the, the best guidance that we can give to people to try to mitigate um, a, a catastrophic event um, claiming more lives than it needs to. 
Now what about when it gets very cold, as it's beginning to get now, very cold weather, right? We're talking about heat and that. It's not that cold. It gets very cold in the winter and that. As was pointed out by Steve just now, you know, uh, uh, cold weather also has health impacts. There's no doubt about that. We've chosen tonight to focus on hot weather because we've just come off uh, a record-breaking summer but we could have potentially a separate session uh, in the future about cold weather. I, I think the, mechani- the mechanism, of, the mechanism of, of, of death, if you will, is, is slightly different um, insofar that... It's <laughs> 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 the obvious, yeah? Uh, um, is that... Uh, uh, so the, the, the research has shown that I think that the, uh, the cause of death... Um, um, in the cold is uh, more associated with respiratory infections, I believe, and I think the, the latency from the cold event to when um, uh, people are passing away is longer, so we're talking like four to six weeks. Um, even though respiratory uh, uh, disorders are, are also a risk factor in the heat, so there is some parallel, um, but um, it certainly is, it, is, it is certainly something that needs attention as well, even though I would argue that I don't think it's that cold. <laughs> I live in Canada. Jen, Jen, do you want to comment on how cold is viewed or how we respond to cold? I was thinking about what you said before in relation to the the kind of almost aesthetics of a heat wave and the slowness of. I mean, there's a there's a a theorist in environmental humanities called Rob Nixon who has this idea of slow violence, where you know he contrasts specifically the our cultural um, obsession with spectacle and the kind of explosive spectacle of the atomic bomb, say, versus the, the, the fallout, which is a much slower toxic creep. Um, and, you know, the deaths, obviously, in that spectacle are, um, are the ones that are counted more readily than the, the ones that are difficult to, to account for because of the scale of the fallout of something like an, an atomic bomb. And the same might be able to be said a little bit for weather events, like, like heat waves have these, you know, they're not as aesthetically kind of catastrophic as, say, an ice storm or a hurricane um, or a tsunami. And so there probably is something, again, a different, it's something different going on um, in relation to that, but I suppose that's all I have to say um, that's something to consider. Um, yeah. yeah, I um, we've spoken a lot about the individual um, being probably one of the best places to start in terms of regulating temperature in environments like this. Um, But I know in my household, the thermostat goes up and down because my brother and dad get really hot and then mum and I are always really cold and so it's always fluctuating. And I think there's an active difference in the thermoregulation between men and women scientifically. Um, Well, from what I've, you know, heard, you can tell me otherwise. I'm just saying from, from my experience, I usually get you know, my jumpers are on first in more than any other guy I've ever met. And um, I suppose in terms of environments or working environments where you've got men and women working in the same place and the girls are going, it's too cold, and the guys are going, it's too hot, you know, how in a planning mechanism could that be something you could deal with? Thanks for the question. Yeah, it's a common one as well. So I can assure you that men and women thermoregulate the same way. Um, but um, and this might get I'm trying not to get um, too, too technological. 
Um, the, the main, uh, the fundamental difference between men and women um, from it is really from a, a physical perspective. So um, uh, you, you probably have a, and this is a compliment, a high surface area to mass ratio. So by passively, so when, you, when you're cooling down, so you're going to lose more heat for the amount of mass that you have, and your mass is going to determine your temperature. So behaviorally, you're more likely to, to your skin temperature is going to cool down, and therefore you're going to behaviorally adapt. Now, humans are, are, are wonderful at behaviorally thermoregulating. And it's something that we don't really take into account as much as we should do, I don't think, is that um, we have a, we're very adaptable to, to all sorts of environments. And, um, and I think that within the workplace, for example, I think there's a, there's a lot of scope for targeting the individual. So I've done a little bit of work with people from um, University of California, Berkeley, and they've developed these chairs for people working in offices. And within the, cha the chair, there's a, there's a double membrane, and then there's just a simple, on the back of fans, a little fan that sits in the, in the base of the chair and one in the back. And, you can, and, um, and they're, they're really quite clever, though, because they've, they've, they've positioned them so they target exactly where you have the highest density of, of sensors in your skin that sense cold. So then, and these, these fans are use one watt of energy each. And in terms of the thermal comfort that you can develop in a 25, 26, 27 degrees Celsius room for the use of two watts of energy, and it's individually, um, so you can control the speed and things like that. And I think that that is a solution that we should be taking very seriously moving forward. Um, because, as, as I mentioned earlier on, we're, we're, all, we're all in one room, and it's probably around about 19 degrees Celsius because the person who came in probably set the, the, the set to 19 degrees Celsius, and the majority of us are probably not satisfied with it. Particularly if we had to wear a fixed amount of clothing, we're able to, able to behaviorally adapt to make it more satisfactory. But um, cooling or focusing on the individual is definitely a very important thing that we should be looking at. And perhaps to pick up on that point about clothing, I think uh, there's the possibility of us uh, challenging our cultures of clothing. You know, when, uh, when my family first uh, moved from New Zealand in the far south to Brisbane in the 1960s, it was quite common for men to wear shorts and short-sleeved shirts in offices. You know, they were, it, it was a, a quite different culture now. You know, you go to the centre of Brisbane, the offices are in these glass towers, they're fully air-conditioned, and the men are in jackets and ties. So, so we can, you know, if you look at Asian cultures, you know, batik clothing that's looser-fitting, it's cooler, and, um, and perhaps uh, part of the difference between men and women is about the clothing, you know, with men with a tie tying up, and they perhaps need it, uh, in one sense, uh, to feel comfortable, to be a little bit cooler. But I think as we, as we look ahead, uh, there's no reason why we shouldn't um, challenge those clothing cultures as well, and the clothing uh, uh, standards that we expect uh, from people and, uh, and try and uh, uh, um, break them down as well. Uh, that might reduce our um, need for and use of air conditioning. Jen? Well, I, just, I, I wanted to also suggest that if product, is maintaining a particular level of productivity necessary? Oh, yes. Uh, yes, it turns into a question. <laughs> um, it is rhetorical for my position, but I think it's actually a question. That's the question. Uh, um, I, 
Mm. That's, a, that's a big one. <laughs> that, I think that's, that's for the next. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you might have to ask. But I suppose if we're, if we're developing right. these technologies to, to insulate ourselves to maintain a particular ideal level of productivity, is that what? Where should that be the driver? Should that be the driver? Yeah, yeah. Mm. Yeah. Well, we've, we've got people who want to happy. <laughs> <laughs> yes. right. we'll, we'll take a question up there. Sir? It's lucky we've got some agency in this forum. <laughs> I haven't given up. Um, yeah, uh, first of all, I'd say, first about the productivity. Obviously, as automation comes in, uh, we're going to have to worry more about keeping the uh, computer servers cool, which is actually a major energy uh, drain on our modern society <laughs> in our current uh, incarnation. Um, uh, and nobody wants to uh, ride a bike out in the western suburbs of Sydney in summer, I can tell you, apart from the heat, the UV rays will fry you very quickly. So that's another reason we're not a European city, which is very compact in most cases. Um, I just wanted to, to point out, uh, firstly, I came in driving in down Canterbury Road, which is an urban redevelopment corridor, and there are huge amounts of apartments being built there. Uh, I think there's some ridiculous statistic that we had more cranes building residential properties on the eastern seaboard of Australia than the entire continent of America by quite a way, which is a scary thought. So this idea that supply somehow will magically increase, there isn't the capacity out there, so we can forget that. But what I really wanted to talk about was the uh, problem of... Um, um, rating, I think, residential buildings. Now, commercial buildings tend to have the, the NABA's energy green ratings to, and use it as a center point these days, you know, to keep your costs down. And we have that wonderful uh, green building in Broadway with the, uh, the vertical gardens on it, etc. Um, but residential buildings don't tend to get sold that way and don't, don't tend to be rated that way, which I think is ridiculous. We've talked about the gentleman from Western Sydney here, the health, uh, how much hotter it is out there. Well, obviously, that is a cost for the people living out there because they're going to have to work their air conditioning harder. They have to travel further normally and maybe pay all these wonderful tiles on these wonderful new tailways. So they have extra costs for living out there when they actually probably have less income to do it on. Um, so I think it would be very valuable and also be an incentive to builders as a marketing tool if they could actually sell the properties as being energy efficient because we know they our buildings, residential buildings are built terribly. They don't align to the, the, the line of the sun. They don't have solar panels built in. Solar thermal, I think, water systems should be standard because um, they act as a thermal mass to regulate as a thermostat. We shouldn't build so close together the McMansions because they radiate between each other and there's less convection around it, etc., etc. And most of those are in the western suburbs as well. So all these factors could be built in this idea of rating. So I just wondered if you wanted to comment on this idea that maybe that would be a way to drive the development we want and to have great awareness in the public of the importance and the value and savings that people could have. Thank you. Adrian. Definitely. <laughs> um, there's a couple of things about that. One, in New South Wales, we do have uh, a policy that you know new residential dwellings have to meet water and thermal and energy uh, targets, but they're not that too onerous. And the other thing I'd like to uh, mention is that you know with the <clears throat> recent worry in South Australia with energy um, uh, supply, lots of people have just gone off the people who could and they've gone and got their Tesla batteries. And it seems to me that more and more people are actually going off grid to become uh, independent, you know, not to be beholden to things. 
And so, you know, it's nothing like a good disaster to bring around um, innovation in some way. But the idea of marketing our homes to actually save us money is, is a really foreign um, concept for this city. And so, you know, our medium house price has gone over a million dollars. So, and we have issues about stamp duty and all those sort of things, but how fantastic would it be to actually demonstrate really fantastic sustainable technology because it should be able to be delivered uh, in an affordable manner and, you know, people would actually be... Um, I think they would be driven by the bottom dollar about how much it's going to cost you to maintain. I mean, we saw that a little bit around Newington, you know, when we had all the new stuff for the Olympic Village when that was sold off the plan and that was one of the things about being five-star rated and people were really keen. But it certainly hasn't, hasn't grabbed the imagination and it should grab the imagination. Great. Um, time for one last question. Uh, thank you. This uh, question, I think, is for Tony, and I hope I'm not too off-topic here, but I was wondering if you'd care to make some comment on what you perceive the risk to human well-being from two um, threats, as I see it, uh, from rising heat, one being the, the risk to human well-being directly from increases in heat and uh, heat waves, compared to the indirect impact on humans from the effect that rising heat has on ecosystems, which will then feed back to affect human well-being. Can you care to comment on, like, those two risks? I know they're all interrelated, but, I mean, I'm, I'm reading more and more evidence of the impact that heat is having on other vegetation and humans, and that's going to feed back to directly impact us, is it not? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think it comes back to almost where we started the session, that uh, uh, we tend to focus on the things that are most straightforward and most readily understood. And so it's those direct pathways between a climate and climate change and health that get most attention. But you're absolutely right. We need to be thinking more and more deeply about those indirect pathways. And uh, uh, that gives me an opportunity uh, to hold something up today, uh, which um, is a new journal that uh, uh, launched uh, by The Lancet yesterday, uh, The Lancet Planetary Health. And it's very much focused on these broader relationships between uh, our, uh, our natural systems and our health and well-being. And uh, uh, this is an area that hasn't had the attention uh, that it should have had in recent decades, and uh, uh, the editor of The Lancet, uh, Richard Horton, uh, who will actually be on the campus here with us later in the year for a number of sessions, is advancing uh, this new concept with the support of the Rockefeller Foundation, the Wellcome Trust, and uh, really uh, encouraging us all, uh, all of us in the room, all the academics uh, across a diverse university like this, to be thinking more deeply about the health and well-being of future generations. You know, what's ahead, what's over the horizon, uh, uh, rather than just focusing on the here and now uh, uh, in, in this city, uh, as, as we tend to do. So, thank you. Yeah, thank you. And I'd also just like to add, 
the additional framework of not just looking at it as a health problem or just as an urban planning problem, but also to think about it as a cultural uh, challenge, um, looking at physiology, looking at urban planning, looking at environments, looking at transport. Uh, I think that's the way we have to try and address these complex challenges, even though, as Tony notes, it's hard for us as a community and uh, as a society to um, address these complex systems issues. But that really is the challenge that faces us. Um, so thanks, everyone, for coming out tonight. Uh, thank you to our panel for sharing their experience uh, and their research and their ideas. Uh, and I hope all of you stay nice and well-regulated temperature-wise uh, on your way home this evening. Thanks very much. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore ideas.